Okay, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 as we continue our study in Matthew. And if you see me walking around up here, yes, my coat is bleeding. So, okay, but I'm not. Okay, let's, yeah, Matthew 9, 32 and through 34. In Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 32, it says, And as they were going out, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to Jesus. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the rulers of demons. And we're going to talk about the, uh, the, the last verses also, but I want to stop there. Because this is the main focus, but I want this miracle here, but we will discuss the other verses throughout the message. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this day. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for the music. Thank you for the time of fellowship, the time that we can give back as far as giving our tithes and our offerings to your storehouse to be used for your work, your kingdom. And uh, God, I just thank you that uh, we are allowed to hear the message that the Holy Spirit has for us today. I don't know the hearts of each and every individual, but I know that you do. And so... I just ask that, that your grace and its sufficiency do the work that's needed today by way of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and our lives through the Word, through the, uh, the Scripture, through the uh, message, uh, whatever other means that might be used, I pray that you'll just deal with us the way that you would have or the, the way that you would desire to deal with us. And I pray that we will not resist it in any way that we'll have our eyes and our ears open to the truth. May we pray all during this service, God, open my eyes and ears to the truth that I may hear you speak to my heart, that I may know what I need to do. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stick out your tongue. Say, ah. No, not don't, please. But you know, growing up, I remember going to the doctor and them asking you to do that. And they had this cute little popsicle-like stick, and uh, it was a tongue depressor, and they would ask you to stick your tongue out, and they would ask you to say, ah, and that way they can look back at your tonsils and your throat and see the, uh, the area there, if there's any uh, peculiarities and that they need to examine. Now, if they needed a swab, they'd take a swab and, and they'd take a, get an ex, uh, you know, uh, uh, a piece of your, um, I mean, some of your mucus and send it off uh, to get it um, uh, examined and tested. But they, de they did this to determine what the problem was. Well, here we see a man that needed to say, ah, he needed to say, ah, to be healed more than just physically. He needed to be healed spiritually. And so 
After healing the two blind men, and while they were leaving, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. It says, and here's a problem. The problem was that they knew that they couldn't handle the situation. They knew that it could not be taken care of by any physicians or anything else. So they brought him to the great physician, Jesus. They had heard about him. They had seen and heard about the miracles that he was performing. And this man was brought and he was dumb. In other words, uh, not intellectually, but he could not speak. And so the lack of ability to speak, though, was just a symptom of a more serious disease that we will find out here. Uh, to most, this man had no, no ability to talk. I mean, that was it. They said, well, you know, he's got a problem there. He can't talk, can't hear. But he, uh, you know, in not being able to communicate with them, had a much deeper problem. And the problem ran so deep that it, we, we are told that it was demon-possessed. He was possessed by a demon, in other words. In the New Testament, we're, we're told that uh, demons afflict men and women with mental, moral, and physical distempers. In other words, uh, they inhabit non-believers and cause them to act, a, and, and can cause them to act a certain way. But they, uh, you know, as they enter non-believers, they can control them. They oppress believers, though. They don't enter into them to control them because the Holy Spirit lives in a believer, but they can oppress a believer from the outside so much so that they may seem to be demon-possessed if allowed to uh, this demon to, uh, to oppress you. And so they energize idolatry, immorality and other forms of wickedness and they carry out satan's anti-god plan and this anti-god plan involves an agenda that satan has devised and so do demons exist today we read about them in the bible but do they really exist today and the bible teaches that satan and his fallen angels will continue to try and usurp God's authority and his kingdom work until God one day judges them and casts them into the lake of fire. Now, has that happened yet? No. Why do you say no? Well, one reason is that the Lord has not come to set up his kingdom not yet on earth, the physical kingdom. And another reason is that evil is still in this world and Satan is behind this evil. Now when his angels and he are cast into the lake of fire forever, the presence of evil will be abolished from those who are believers, who are with the Lord. And so today... We see the world that's involved in so many cultisms. We see them involved in so many spiritualisms. We see them involved with witchcraft. We see them involved in Satanism. We see them involved in Hare Krishna, Zen Buddhism. 
We see them involved in transcendental medica- uh, meditation and new, all kinds of new age religions and practices. And so in turn, we see that Satan works through a lot of these because it opens its mind up to nothing. And with that nothing, just like in the time when, uh, when the scripture says that the, you know, there was a man that was a, you know, in his house, in the, in the body, uh, it was swept clean and the demon was cast out. Well, he did nothing about that and what happened? Seven more entered in. They entered that vacancy, that emptiness. And uh, we, uh, you know, in my senior year in high school, a song came out entitled The Age of the Aquarius. And with this song came the announcement by the astrologers that a new day had dawned characterized by humanism, brotherhood, and love. And one thing that could be said about this new day that they were talking about it was that it was a time of drugs and alcohol and rebellion. And what was that time open for? It was a prime time for Satan and his demons to capture the thinking and philosophy of many. And believe me, it seems he did. And it's continued on. And so, should, you know, uh, should we believe in demons and say, uh, satanic activity today? Very much so. We should believe in the reality of the spirit world today. Just as much as when Christ was here on earth. And the instant mentioned in Matthew 9, 32 through 34, it was real. It wasn't some fairy tale. It wasn't a parable. It wasn't a story made up. This dumb man was probably mute also, and he probably was not able to hear or speak, in other words. And uh, the Greek word there means, literally means, blunt or dull. In other words, there was a dullness in speech and hearing. And so, in this particular case, the illness, though, appears to have been caused by demonization now let me say not all sickness is caused by that we know that we must realize from the scripture that this is not the only cause of illness there are many causes for illness matter of fact in mark chapter 7 verses 32 through 33 we find out that the same kind of illness was not caused by demon activity so We shouldn't run around saying, well, that person is demon or demonized because he can't speak or he can't see or whatever. That is not necessarily the case. And so in turn, this healing that we see occur here is the last of the series of the remarkable signs or miracles which display the messianic credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Does he do any more? Yes, but this is in Matthew, and this is the last that we see of this. And so in turn, the request that we need to look at is a request from the friends. Jesus had restored Jairus' daughter after the healing of the woman that touched him, that had the issue of blood. 
And from the house of uh, Jarius, he moves to the village where he heals two blind men. And just as one group was leaving the house, another arrives, uh, and these friends bring in this one that could not speak or hear. But he could not speak or hear because of demon possession. Now, Spurgeon describes this in a beautiful way. You see, there was one act of grace and mercy after another. It just was succeeded by one another. He describes it this way. This concession of miracles as, uh, is a concession of miracles of inexhaustible fullness in Christ. He just blesses and blesses and blesses, yet he never runs out of blessings. Aren't you grateful for that? I mean, people can still be saved today. People can still be healed if he so chooses to heal. But let me tell you, he heals people just like then. These healings were for a purpose. He didn't just come to heal the sick. He came to prove that he was the fulfillment of Scripture. And he did this through his teachings and miracles. Now, when we come to this, we see that when Jesus cast out the demon out of the man, the man was healed also of his muteness. And look at the result, result of Jesus' miracle. In verse 33, when the demon was cast out, Nothing is said of the manner here of exorcism. One can imagine from the flow of the verse that it was with ease. It was always with ease with Jesus. And so the prince of darkness is no match for the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is under Christ's authority. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You see, the, the Lord shows us that he heals by different means. Sometimes he heals with a word. At other times he healed with a touch. Here Jesus heals a man who cannot even utter a plea of deliverance for himself. And yet the Savior touched with compassion. Honors the faith of the man. And he heals him. This is the way Jesus is. He does not hoard his miracles for just a few select. In other words, he comes with a purpose and all that will may come to him. But they've got to come as the Holy Spirit convicts them and deals with them. So the reaction of the beholders in verse 33, the multitude marveled saying, Nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. Now I want you to look at that. Nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. You know, uh, people believed this meant different things, like the miracles that had been happening all along, or uh, they were just amazed. Or another writer said, the amazement must be attributed to the fact that this mute and, and, uh, and his condition were well known, and the possibility of him ever being healed was nil. And then others say, well, you know, it's, it's not restricted to his last miracle that they're talking about. The people must be speaking of all that they'd witnessed. Well, all of these probably are true, but 
there are some things that we need to point out about this. First of all, the deaf mute was a remarkable case. He was a remarkable case. Why? Because he was demon-possessed and was deaf and dumb. Here was an excellent test for the power of the Messianic king. Here was an excellent test for Jesus, the Son of God. Under the power of Satan, mastered by Satan, his case seemed hopeless. It was no wonder that the multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. But then not only that, it was a remarkable healing. I mean, you look at the healing. The demon is exercised from the man. So far as scripture is concerned, he never returned. With the casting out of a demon, a permanent deliverance was accomplished. This is what Jesus does for us. He gives us eternal life. When we are born again, it's not that he has to come back and, and die again or, or deliver us again. We are saved once and for all. And I thank God for that. Another thing about this is very interesting. It tells us, the dumb man spoke. Now, was he this way all his life? As far as we know, he was. If he was that way all his life, he was never taught as a child to formulate words and sounds. He didn't go to a teacher. He spoke immediately, didn't he? Spoke the words. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what this man said when he spoke? Boy, I know one thing. It was probably a praise and thanksgiving to his Savior and Lord. You know, Psalms 40, 1 through 3 would have been a, a beautiful case. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. He has put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto my, our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Maybe he was singing something like that, saying something like that. But also this miracle was done by one with unique authority. We have never seen anything like this done in all of Israel. So when this type of miracle gets reported, I want to tell you, it gets front page, doesn't it? It gets attention. It gets immediate attention. It's unique. Wow. Headlines. It's different. Something new. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel before. Now all of this is important because his teaching and his miracles are leading up to something that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 4 that set this off that he told about. And that is his ministry. But look at the reactions. Before we go any further, let's move down to 34. Look at the reactions of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of demons. Wonder how we, one could doubt 
what the Lord was doing after they saw all these miracles, and especially the Pharisees who knew of the Scripture. My goodness. But you know, with people who disbelieve, there is no amount of miracles that will change their mind. They have to be willing to listen to the Holy Spirit when he speaks. The problem the unregenerate have in accepting Christ is not so much a matter of having proof of Jesus, his power, his authority, his truth. The problem is a darkened heart that is unwilling to believe. In Matthew 9, 34, the Pharisees, the opponents to Jesus, saw this plain exhibition of, of his uniqueness, his mighty messianic power, but were determined, they were determined ahead of time to disbelieve and accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons. They doubted the very reality of the miracle and its spiritual foundations, therefore attributing it to Beelzebub. It is this which will lead to the commission of the, the unpardonable sin in chapter 12. Let me say, it is a dangerous thing to reject the word of God and the working of the Holy Spirit. It is a dangerous thing which many people are doing. Look at the purpose of the miracle. Look in verse 35. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The purpose of the healing is to let people know that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Messiah. He is someone who is unique. Nothing like Israel has ever seen before. He is the Son of God. Now I told you in Luke, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 4, it says in verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by, by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And then if you drop down to 14, we read, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, News about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as uh, was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And the Spirit of the Lord, look at there. This is scripture from Old Testament prophesying of the Messiah. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to your captives and to recover or the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And this is the key verse. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
What's he talking about? He's talking about himself, isn't he? He's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. In Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. Jesus is telling them that it has been fulfilled right before them. Israel was told that in the future, one of the signs of the coming Messiah would be the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the mute will shout for joy, and the lame will walk. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus inaugurates his public ministry here by the reading from the scroll of Isaiah and then saying, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your very midst. In our passage in Matthew 9, what is happening? It is being fulfilled. It has been being fulfilled by him performing all his miracles and teaching. And it is being fulfilled right before their very eyes. But the Pharisees, they try to stop this claim from happening by saying, well, he's casting out demons by the rulers of demons. Jesus now, he doesn't try to defend or explain himself here. Because why? Because it is not time yet. He continues to go on and do what he's been called to do. There will come a time, as I said, in chapter 12, where he will address his critics. And this will be on the unpardonable sin. But this is not the time. He must continue with his mission. For his time was short. He knew he must go on. And Jesus was going about, it says in verse 35, all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He's fulfilling before them what he read from Isaiah chapter 35. He is the Messiah. The gospel of the kingdom had come. How do we know that? Because the king of the gospel had come. That's how we know it. But there was a problem. The problem was he wasn't what they were looking for. They were looking for a warrior, a deliverer, someone mighty, riding on that white horse perhaps, coming in to lead them into battle against Rome. You see, their eyes could not see. Their ears could not hear. And Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament prophets of the coming Messiah right before them, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. One thing that needs to be noted here is Jesus did not come primarily, as I said earlier, to heal, just heal sickness. The healings are signs, indicators that tell us that Jesus is who he said he was. The Messiah, the Son of God. He has power not only to heal the sick body, but to heal the sick soul. He said he did that with the paralytic, didn't he? He said his sins were forgiven. The miracles were for a purpose. That purpose was to let the people know that he was a fulfillment of Isaiah. But then look at the preparation of what to come. Matthew 9, 36. 
and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressing and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. To most of us, that's just a poetic metaphor, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't mean that much to us, but centuries ago, it meant a lot to them because a sheep, sheep without a shepherd, meant that they were lost. They were hopeless. It meant that they wouldn't survive. It meant that they were without protection, open prey. They would go wandering off in many different directions without a shepherd. To them, shepherding sheep was a major activity, an important activity. And to Jesus, the people looked like sheep wandering about without a shepherd, downcast, distressed. They were confused, fearful, and discouraged people. Why do you say that? Because he knew their heart. He knew their heart. Aren't you glad that he didn't look at them with disgust? Because if he did, he would have looked at us the same way today. He looks at us with compassion. And I thank God for that. The only hope is for that look of compassion and love. He is love incarnate. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He responded in love. He had compassion. And having compassion meant that he, the word there, co, means to cohabitate, go together, to cooperate. Passion means to feel and so it means to feel together. It's kind of like with a child that's sick. You wish that you could take their sickness upon you because they, they don't know what, how to express themselves and you're holding them in their arms and, and they run the temperature and you say, oh, if I could just take care of that. I feel for them. I have compassion for them. Jesus took care of our sins. He had compassion for us. In verse 36, we're told that Jesus, looking at the masses of people, he had compassion on them. In 2 Corinthians, we're told, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus did for us. That shows us that he had compassion for us. In Matthew 9, verses 37 38, he speaks to his disciples and he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. He is setting up something that is very important for the remainder of the book of Matthew, and that is, and his ministry. That is a two-point dialogue here, two-level dialogue. One to the people, the masses, and one to the disciples. This is what you'll see throughout from here in Matthew. He addresses here his disciples. The metaphor of farming was familiar to, to all in that area. And so in turn, he says the harvest needs workers. In other words, it's right for workers. He has come. The kingdom is here. The, the, you know, but the workers are few. But isn't it interesting here? I want you to look at this. We're to pray for the lost. We should pray for the lost. God saved these people. And there's no doubt in my mind about that. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. We should pray for these. And we should have these people upon our hearts and our minds that are lost. We should have a burden for that. But I want to, I want to tell you something. Here he, he says, the emphasis is not so much for the lost. He, he knows that you're going to 
be praying for the lost and concerned. He says, pray for the workers of the harvest. Once you start praying for the workers of the harvest, if you're not volunteering, if you're sincere, God's going to convict you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And you're going to go and become a worker of the harvest. Maybe we need to do more of that. Pray for workers of the harvest and maybe it'll involve more of us in becoming workers of the harvest. This is transition Jesus' ministry. He's sending out disciples to bring in the harvest. The harvest of what? The good news. The good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. Now is the time to bring in the harvest. Isn't it wonderful? As Jesus does all of this, he shows that he works. Nothing can limit him. He works in so many different ways to bring people to him, but there is only one him. There is only one door. It is through him. I am the door. By me, if any man may enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He alone saves. You may be brought to the Lord through, uh, at a young age through a Sunday school or VBS worker or whatever. Another one may be on the street. And you may be witnessing to them and they may get convicted and be led to the Lord. And then you may be led to go to somebody's house and they're ready to be saved. But all of them, it doesn't matter how you do it and where you do it, and whether you have them pray a sinner's prayer or whether they, they pray what's on their heart, receiving the Lord, they come to the Lord. It's one person that they're coming to, understanding that he is the Savior of the world. And why? Does all of this occur? Why is it possible? Because he is compassionate. He cares. If it wasn't for his compassionate love, we would never be saved and we would be lost for all eternity in hell. You see, his readiness to save is faith. Our refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. In his grace and mercy, he calls us apart to be a part of the harvest. We're called to be faithful. In planting, in watering, but letting God, who has the authority, give the increase. I recall going through, I mean, we, we go through different methods. You don't have to go through these different programs, but we've had CWT. Before CWT, it was ex, uh, experiencing, uh, not experiencing God, it was uh, uh, the one that the Presbyterians did in, in um, Florida. And um, we, uh, we went through it. And, uh, you know, uh, CWT was developed from that. And we, when we were going through that one in, in, uh, 
at First Baptist Kennesaw and, and uh, the, one, the program in, in, from uh, the Presbyterian Church. We, um, uh, you know, I, I can recall us going through that there and then the First Baptist Church over in, uh, in Birmingham. And when we were going through it over in Birmingham, I remember a young boy who was about, he'd gone through about three different sessions of it. And he, uh, he was a teenager, and he was about ready to give up. He said, man, I, you know, he said, never, our group has never seen one person saved, not one. We've done a lot of planning, a lot of watering, but we've, we've not seen any. And I'm just giving up. I'm just kind of discouraged. And they talked him in going through another program. And boy, that boy got on fire. He got excited. God knew what was in his heart, what was in his mind. First time they went out, they witnessed, and they got to water. I mean, they got to bring in the harvest. They not only shared the, planted the seed, although seed had already been planted, not only watered, they had already been watered, but he got to see the reaping. Man, he came back. I, I thought that boy was walking on the water. He, he was just shouting, excited, and he continued on after that, seeing that person come to know the Lord. Nothing like it. Now, it, God doesn't guarantee us every time we go out we're going to have that, does he? But he does want us to go out and plant and water. Let him bring the increase as he works on that soul. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this.